It's Psalm 44. We'll read the entire psalm. This is the portion of Scripture that is quoted later on, as we'll see in Romans chapter 8. A couple of verses here from Psalm 44, so we'll read the whole psalm so that the uh, entire context of that quote is fresh for us. Psalm 44, the Word of God. We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us the deeds you did in their days and days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples and cast them out. For they did not gain possession of the land by their own sword, nor did their own arm save them, but it was your right hand, your arm, and the light of your countenance, because you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you we will push down our enemies. Through your name we will trample those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor shall my sword save me, but you have saved us from our enemies and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast all day long and praise your name forever, but you have cast us off and put us to shame. And you do not go out with our armies. You make us turn back from the enemy, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us up like sheep intended for food, and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for next to nothing, and are not enriched by selling them. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn, and a derision to those all around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a shaking of the head among the peoples. My dishonor is continually before me, and the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you, nor have we dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, but you have severely broken us in the place of jackals, and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or stretched out our hands to a foreign God, would not God search this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Awake. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Arise. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our body clings to the ground. Arise for our help and redeem us for your mercy's sake. Our New Testament text tonight is Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. O God in heaven, we bow humbly before you and ask that you would write your word in our hearts, that you would give us hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone, but hearts that are uh, tender to your work and to your word, hearts that... um, are malleable, that, that, that you would come and give us hearts that, that you yourself would shape them and work them and conform them to Christ and, and, and bring reassurance of the gospel of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. We come tonight to the end of Romans 8 and our study through Romans 8 and looking in particular at the work of the Holy Spirit through the lens of this chapter um, and, and so far, we've seen uh, just a, a catalog of glories throughout the entire chapter. Um, begins with telling us that if by the Spirit you're in Christ, then there's no condemnation for you. That the death penalty that was over you is now gone. And there's a new verdict over your life now. No longer is it condemnation, but righteous in Christ. Because you've been made alive in him. By the Spirit, God has counted you righteous because of his righteousness. You're forgiven. Um, And then Paul goes on and then then he talks about how in Christ, through the Spirit, the domination, the totalitarian domination of your life by sin has been ended. And you're living in a new world, a new realm, where the Spirit gives life and works righteousness in you. And then we read that uh, as the Spirit fills you, He's the Spirit of adoption. He brings you into union with Christ and you receive the benefit of Christ's adoption counted as yours, brought into the family of God. And you are able to call God Father, just like our Lord Jesus did. And you're able to have the assurance because the Spirit of adoption is in you to know deep down that He is your Father and that He loves you. And the spirit uh, of adoption also means that we have this wonderful inheritance. We share in Christ's own inheritance. That the whole of Christ's reward, we are co-heirs with Christ and receive it with him. Yes, we suffer in union with him, but that suffering is just the, that suffering's the prelude to the glory that's coming. Um, and, and, and the spirit keeps us through that suffering. He makes us to persevere through it. He's the one who helps us in our weakness. And the suffering we go through is not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when the Spirit makes us finally fully alive in the image of Christ and 
and remakes the world into the new creation. All of this planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son for us and applied to us by the Spirit. All of this Paul's been working through for us in Romans chapter 8. How do you end a chapter like that? Where there's just so, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, just a flood of, of, of the grace of God and the goodness of God. Like trying to drink from a fire hose. It's just overwhelming with the, the, the goodness of God in Romans chapter 8. How do, how do you end a chapter like that? You've been, you've been scaling these mountain peaks. What's the highest point that you could end on? It's the love of God. The, the, of all the glorious vistas of the peaks that we've been ascending, of, of the gospel that we've seen, the highest of all, the one that Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, ends with, is the love of God, the covenant-keeping love of God for his people. That love which stands at the beginning of, of our redemption is also the telos, the end, the goal of our redemption. As I was, as I was thinking over this, though, and thinking about uh, the study of the Holy Spirit, particularly in this chapter, I noticed that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned in these last verses that we read. Um, he's mentioned so much through the rest of the chapter, but then we get to this, to this final section, and, and um, Paul begins talking about the, the love of God and the inseparability of the saint from God, and the Spirit seem, doesn't seem to be mentioned uh, so much as he was before. Um, does this mean the Spirit doesn't have anything to do with the love of God? Um, no. Uh, it's because Paul already mentioned this back in Romans chapter 5 as he was talking there about the love of God and the work of the Spirit. Romans 5, verse 5, he says that God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Spirit who's been given to us. And so as Paul describes the love of God for us and, and what it means for us that we're not able to be separated from the love of God, how do we receive and know and enjoy that love? It's through the ministry of the Spirit as he unites us with Christ. The culmination then of all the Spirit's work throughout the chapter that we've seen is to make us to know the love of Christ. Um, the great thing the greatest thing about the gospel is not our justification or our sanctification or our resurrection. All those things are wonderful, precious things, but they're all bringing us into the presence of God, fellowship with God, and to enjoy his love and worship him for it. Four things that we see unpacked for us here about God's love for us. Number one, Paul tells us, verse 31, because God loves us, nothing can stand against us. Paul is asking a series of rhetorical questions here, and his first question is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, if, if you're in Christ, he's saying, then God is, is for you. God is on your side. He loves you, and he is, he's, he's, he is with you and for you. Your cause is his cause. And his unchangeable purpose, his unchangeable purpose is to do you good and to bless you and to save you. He's for you by his almighty power and his steadfast love. And it can't change. He will always be for you in Christ Jesus. This is the language of 
God's covenant commitment. We see it all over the Old Testament, don't we? God promising His people, I am, I am with you. I won't let you go. I'll never leave you or forsake you. We see it in Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is on my side. If the Lord's on your side, what does it mean? If God is for you, what does it mean? Psalm 118, verse 6 goes on. The Lord's on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? That's what Paul's saying here as well. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is fighting for you, what's the opposition going to do? What, what chance do they stand of overcoming you if God is for you? You see this illustrated in the story of Elijah and his servant in 2 Kings verse 6, don't we? Wonderful illustration of this principle of God's for you. What can even an army do against you? This army from Syria uh, comes against Elijah, Elisha excuse me, to, uh, to, to, to destroy him. Armies, right? This big army surrounds the city of Dothan where he's staying. And his servant wakes up and goes outside and he sees all the enemy troops surrounding them. And he comes back into Elijah and he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha's response, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. God is with us. God is for us. That, that's what the essence of the covenant is. I belong to him. He is my God. This is what sustained Moses, right? Facing up to Pharaoh. What did he know? God is with me. God, in this covenant of grace, is for me. This is what sustained Joshua. God saying, I will not leave you or forsake you. I will fight for you. As he went up against Jericho. This is what sustained uh, David against Goliath. This is what, as we just saw, sustained Elisha. These, these saints who've gone before us, they, they, they knew this so deep down in their hearts. God himself is for me. And if God is for me, who can be against me? All these examples also show us that as Paul is saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Um, the, the, the way we would answer that question, it's a rhetorical question, but if we try to answer, if God is for us, who can be against us? We wouldn't say, well, no one can be against us because lots of people do come against us, don't they? Um, we are surrounded by enemies. Um, Jesus said, if you're in the, uh, the world has hated me, the world will hate you. We're surrounded by spiritual enemies, the, uh, Satan and his minions against us, powers of darkness set against us our own indwelling sin, and those who hate Christ. And we look around, and it looks like the world and, 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 and all that is sinful and, and evil is stronger than the church, stronger than my faith, stronger, than, stronger than, than our little congregation. Think of Paul. How, how small the outward evidence of Christ's kingship was for him. Just a few. How many Christians did he were there at that time. And, 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 there, and then there's the Roman Empire or the ruling classes of Jerusalem even. Seems so much stronger outwardly to the eye of the flesh. But what did Paul know? God's for us. Who can be against us? Loved ones, we need to learn this lesson. He is for us. 
Now, so, sometimes um, difficult providence comes, painful season of life comes, and it is, it, it is easy for us to slip into thinking, well, he's sometimes for us. He's he, half-heartedly for us. Right now, it doesn't feel like he's, like he's for us. Uh, loved ones, his ways are higher than our ways, and we will not always understand what he's doing, why he's doing it, and, and, and his timing and, and his reasons. But we need to remember, most of all in those times, those hardships, that, that even though all seems set against us, God himself is indeed with us and he's for us. And we know that because his being for us doesn't depend on the weather of his providence, if you will whether it's a sunny providence or a rainy one. And, and his being for us does not depend on our being worth it for him to be with us and for us, but it depends on our Lord Jesus Christ. Did Christ die for us? Did Christ rise for us? Are we in Christ? He's for us. We need to hold on to the promise and not fear. Because God loves us, nothing Nothing can stand against us. The second thing, because God loves us, he freely gives us Christ and everything with Christ. You see this in verse 32. Because God loves us, he freely gives us Christ and everything with Christ. Verse 32 is such a precious verse. It says this, he... That is God. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What a promise. You see what the, the logic that, that, that Paul is unpacking. God has given us the greatest of gifts. God, God has given us everything he has to give in Christ the very greatest display of his love and generosity and just the utter gratuitousness of giving us his own son to die for us. He gave him up for us. He handed Christ over to death for you because he loved you. Is he going to start then being stingy now? That's the logic. Think of it like this. Um, uh, a young woman's getting married, say, and her father decides that you know he, her father's wealthy and he's going to give he's going to he's going to throw the biggest wedding party um, that he possibly can afford. Right? He's going to he's going he's gonna, to uh, pay for the the most gorgeous, expensive wedding venue, and he's going to bring in a top-notch chef to cook uh, just the, just the best food for this wedding. He's going to he's going to pay for all these things, but then he says, "There's no way I'm buying the little sparklers at the end." Um, as they send you off, right? That's too much expense. No. If he's, if he's given all of this, is he going to withhold anything? Our God, delighted to give Christ for our salvation, it was not a begrudging gift. It was the free and full gift of his gratuitousness, his graciousness for us. We, 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 again, we can get kind of our thinking all backwards and think, well, uh, he, 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 he gave me Christ, but if he really loved me, he'd, he'd throw some of these other things in. Um, 
Loved ones, He has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And He will give us grace then to persevere and press on through every difficulty and, and suffering. He will not deny us anything good. He will give us everything we, we need because it is His grace to us, not our worth for Him. In addition to this, as, as Paul is saying this, um, He's given us Christ. How will He not also give us all things, freely give us all things? Um, he, he's saying to us that everything God has to give is found in Christ. It's all this, this full, this whole, complete salvation is found in Christ. If we have Christ, then we have all. So, because God loves us, He freely gives us Christ and everything with Christ. The third thing about God's love uh, that we see here in verses 33 and 34 is this. Because God loves us, He has justified us. Paul began this chapter talking about how there's no condemnation anymore for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now as he comes to the end of the chapter, he comes back to the same idea to tell us that there is no condemnation for us, no charges that can be brought against us. He says in verses 33 and 34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies it's the language of the courtroom. He's, he's, he asks the question. It's a rhetorical question, but he asks it. Uh, who will bring a charge? Who's going who's to press charges on those that God has called? Um, we might think that there are lots of people who could press charges. Um, Satan, the accuser of the brethren, he, he wants to press charges against me and say, well, he, you can't justify except him. Uh, look what he's done. Um, he could, he's a master prosecutor, loved ones, um, and he could build a rock-solid case. Uh, he, could, uh, he could press lots of charges against us. Uh, surely he will try. And then other people as well could press charges. There are lots of other people I've sinned against. Lots of people I've wronged. They have lots of evidence. They, 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 could, they could accuse me of things before God. And my own heart as well. I don't even know the extent of my own sins. Right? We, we, don't, we don't know our own sinfulness, but we know enough of it to know there's plenty there that our own hearts try to condemn us over. And we can say, well, look at, all, look at all these things. All these people, including my own heart, bringing condemnation for my, my sin. And it's all, they're not making this up. It's sin. I'm guilty before him. But God's word reminds us God is the one who justifies. He's the judge who has authority, brothers and sisters. Satan doesn't have authority to make the final verdict. Other people don't have authority over you to make the verdict. And your own heart does not have authority to make the verdict. God is the judge. And he looks at you and he says, You are righteous. I've clothed you with my son's righteousness. I look at you and I see his righteousness on you, in you, working in you, imputed to you. There's no charge that can stick. There's no evidence that anyone can bring up before God that he would be surprised by or say, well, that really changes things. His word is the last word on it, and there is no court of appeal 
He's justified us. And this, Paul, Paul continues to, this point is so crucial, he continues in verse 34 uh, to kind of in a parallel way repeat it and advance it. He says, verse 34, who is to condemn? And again, we could say, well, lots of people could condemn, myself included. But who can condemn? No one, because God has already said, no condemnation for me in Christ Jesus. And then he points us to Christ here, the grounds of this justification. He says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. Uh, His death means I am not condemned. His death means God's wrath is paid in full. The the debt is no longer mine. He has paid it for me. I have no debt before God. I'm forgiven. There is no condemnation possible for me or you because Christ has died. And then Paul says more than that. Christ was raised. It's like Paul is just bringing out all, right, he's, 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 he's rallying everything he can to, to, to make us know for sure that we are justified forever in, in Christ. God is the judge. Christ died. Christ is also raised, right? His resurrection is his vindication. It's God accepting his sacrifice and saying, yes, I accept that sacrifice for uh, for, for the sins of my people, uh, for the sins of my people, Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our righteousness in Him. And Paul's still not done. Christ died. Christ was raised, and there's something more. He's at the right hand of God, interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's, he's pleading what He did for your forgiveness. The hymn puts it well. He ever lives above. For me to intercede, his all-redeeming love, his precious blood to plead. His blood was shed for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. Five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. He's interceding for us. And the Father, delighting in the Son, is pleased to answer every intercession. There's not a word that our Lord Jesus prays that God says no to. And and so our whole life is under this glorious banner, no condemnation, justified forever. There is no one who can condemn. We are justified in Christ because of the love of God for us. And all of this means that there can be no separation from his love. And this is our fourth point, the final point. Because God loves us, we will never be separated from him. Verses 35 through 39. Uh, All of this, all of this gospel, which the Father planned and Jesus Christ accomplished and which the Spirit applies, is that we would know God and the love of God and and, and worship Him and glorify and enjoy Him. That is our chief end. Um, Do you know the love of God? Not just know of it, but do you know the love of God for you? There is nothing so precious as His love, brothers and sisters. We were made to know His love. 
There is no other who can love as, as He loves. His love for you is infinite and eternal and unchangeable because He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and He is love. One of my favorite theologians, Gerhardus Voss, says this about God's love. It says, The best proof that He will never cease to love us lies in that He never began. God never began loving you. There is never a time when He did not love you. God is God. He is eternal. He has loved you without beginning. There wasn't a time He started loving you. So will He end loving you? Will, will, will that stop? There is no part of God. There are no parts in God. There, there, there is no part of Him, no pocket of Him which does not love you. No part of Him that resents all that He's done for you. Um, he is love. Everlasting, eternal, infinite, unchangeable love. And His love for you, brothers and sisters, being what it is, um, it's not based in you. He didn't start loving you when you proved yourself lovely to Him. But when you were a sinner, He loved you. In, in, when you were dead in trespasses, He loved you. His love paid the great cost. It was not a cheap thing, an easy thing. Um, but He sends Jesus Christ, gives Him out of His love for you. And, and He does it all to bring you and me into His love. The love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever have shared and forever will share. He, he, he brings us into that relationship. He sweeps us up into it so that we can know Him. This is what is yours in Christ. This is what the Spirit of Christ is, is pouring into your heart. But Paul knows that we wonder at times if there are things that can separate us from this love that God has for us. There are things that can separate us from other people's love for us. There are things that can cut us off from a husband or a wife's love. There are things that can cut us off from a child's love or a parent's love or a friend's love. Those loves can be separated. What about, what about God's love? Paul takes time in this question. He doesn't rush through it. He takes time and he says, you know what, there is a lot that will try to separate us from the love of God. There is even, brothers and sisters, a lot that will seem in the clouded vision of doubt to separate us from the love of God for us. Paul lists out seven things. Seven, of course, a nice full, complete number to say there is a lot that is piling on and fighting against us that will try to separate us or look like it will separate us or experientially feel like it separates us from the love of God. Um, he lists out all these things. He, he says tribulation. The word means suffering and, and afflictions. Uh, he mentions distress. Um, the various distresses of life, the things that stress us out and upset us. Uh, circumstances that tempt us to say that God's, God's not really loving us at, at this time and at this moment, or that His love is not able to, to protect us or it's not sufficient for us. Paul mentions um, persecution. 
facing isolation, facing uh, uh, losing cultural credibility for, for holding fast to God and the gospel, losing your standing in society, uh, fa- facing worse things from persecution, as so many of our brothers and sisters do. Can those things, sticking you in a jail cell, threatening to, to hurt your loved ones, can those things separate you from the love of, of God in Christ? Um, how about going hungry, a famine, not having clothes to wear, uh, being, being poor, um, suffering in these ways. He talks about peril, danger, earthquake, fire, uh, natural disasters, extreme danger, even martyrdom. The sword, he says. What, what if I have to die for Christ? Paul is giving us this full picture. Yes, there's a lot that will feel like and try to separate us from the love of, of God in Christ. Paul's not being naive by telling us about the glories of his, of his love. And then he, to, to really drive it home, he quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, which we read earlier. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's Paul's description. That's the psalmist's description of, of often what it is like to be part of the people of God in this life. Killed all day long. Looked at as sheep to be slaughtered. Suffering with Christ in union with Christ. Does it separate us? Does any of this separate us from the love of God for us in Christ? It might at times seem like it, like it does. It might even, these, these things could be really shatter us, break us, um, even kill us. Um, but God's love for you is stronger than your sense of his love for you. His, his love for you is stronger than your knowledge of his love for you. His love does not depend on feeling like he loves you. It depends on him being the unchangeable lover of your soul. When I discipline my children, I don't know that they're overwhelmed with a sweet sense of my love for them. Oh, but I do love them. And when I'm disciplining them, that's I'm disciplining them because I love them. They, they don't feel it. Oh, but later, later they'll, they'll, they'll know. Um... And so it is with, with, with the Lord, loved ones. Um, he treats us as sons. And so Paul comes to verse 37. He says, in all these things, in all the things he just mentioned, famine, hunger, hardship, persecution, nakedness, sword, danger, a whole list of it, in all these things, not despite all these things, not unfortunately these things are a side effect, but hey, here's this truth. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. When you're overwhelmed with grief, a dear loved one's passed away, when you're reeling from the news that your spouse has this really bad sickness, or that you do, um, when you're being mocked for living faithfully for Christ, in that, more than a conqueror, when, when, you're, when you look weak and, and even broken, The Greek here for conqueror, uh, uh, for Paul's word about conqueror, could be translated as something like, you are a super conqueror through Christ, through him who loved us. Uh, the, the sense is that um, you could translate it like this, as, as one theologian did. In all these things, we are winning a glorious victory 
through Him who loves us. This is the, 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 the wonderful irony that God works by. We look like we're being defeated, but when we're weak, then we're strong. It, it's, it's, we shouldn't expect anything different. Look at, look at how God wins our salvation and conquers our enemies. It's in the cross of Jesus Christ. The great moment of weakness, our salvation is won. And so it is for us. We are winning a glorious victory, even in this suffering and the hardship and the weakness. And none of it can separate us from God's love. It's all driving us closer to Him and bringing us closer to His love. The things that feel like they are going to break us are the marks that we're winning a glorious victory in Christ through Christ, because of Christ, there's nothing. Paul brings us to this wonderful uh, crescendo. There's nothing in heaven or hell. No angel, no demon, nothing good, nothing bad that can separate us from God's love for us in Christ Jesus. This is what is yours, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus. This is what the Holy Spirit has poured into your heart the knowledge of this love and the assurance of this love. There's nowhere else you'll find a love like this, a salvation like this. Only from God, only in Christ, only by the Spirit. So look to Him. Trust in His love. Remember His love. Meditate on His love for you in Christ. Delight in it and rest in it, knowing knowing that He has loved you and He will love you and that his love will bring you home to himself. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your steadfast love, for your covenant cut in Christ, applied by the Spirit. We thank you that you are our God and we are your people forever. We pray, Father, that you give us faith in these precious promises and give us the sweet assurance of your love. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.